Well, if you do have a Bible with you this morning, we're turning back to that passage we read from in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 45. And uh, can I just draw your attention for our text this morning to verse 11, Isaiah 45 and verse 11. It says this, Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his Maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands, command ye me. And as you'll see on your sheet that you have in front of you, our subject this morning is praying about the future, praying about the future. Isaiah lived in very uncertain days, days when the future seemed very bleak, They were days of great change, weren't they? Internally, Judah as a a nation had grown less and less dependent upon the Lord. They had descended into spiritual decline. Apostasy had sadly taken root. And despite the the many attempts by Hezekiah, for example, to restrain this this decline, ultimately such was the, the wickedness of the people that, of course, judgment was inevitable from God. And not only was there change internally within the nation, but there was great change taking place externally, wasn't there? You look at, if you were to look at the world scene of Isaiah's day, the Assyrians were on the march. They had expanded their borders through ruthless and sweeping military campaigns, and their vast empire just seemed to increase on a daily basis. They were, of course, being used as instruments in in the hands of God to punish the land of Israel for their idolatry, for their sin, for their rebellion against God. But Judah, at this point in its history, has been graciously spared, hasn't it? Israel have already been carried away, but Judah, the land of Judah, had been graciously spared by God. And the prophet Isaiah was sent to the people of Judah to warn them that judgment was coming for them too, that desolation would come because of their sin also. As we said, the Assyrians were in the ascendancy at this point, but of course the Babylonians would take over from the Assyrians, and we know that the Babylonians would come and take their place and invade, and God's people would be carried away as exiles to that foreign land. And in Isaiah chapter 6, that passage that we started from this morning, in Isaiah chapter 6, and if you were to read in verse 10 there, we uh, find there something of what the prophet was to do. We read there that he was to deliver this message, and it says, Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. And in verse 11, he says, How long? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitants, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate, and the Lord hath removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. And so this was what Isaiah was to do. He was to bring this message until the judgment came. And Isaiah brings this message of of judgment and desolation. And as he brought this message, there were a variety of responses to the message that Isaiah was bringing them. If you turn to Isaiah 22, we're told that some of them responded with eating. 
and drinking, being merry and, and having a good time. And uh, we find that, that they, these people just, they didn't care. They had no concern for uh, this message. They didn't, they just carried on as if nothing was, as, you know, was going to happen. You know, they sort of lived, said, well, if this is going to happen, tomorrow we die, we may as well eat and drink and live and be merry. If that's the future, let's just enjoy today. That's what the people were saying in chapter 22. There were others, of course, if you go into the book of Jeremiah, who were saying, peace, peace. They were saying to the people, you know, the Isaiah's message is all wrong. The people are not going to be taken away into captive. Don't listen to this man. But of course it says that they said peace, peace, when there was no peace. And here in Isaiah chapter 45 and verses 9 and 10, there was another response because it was seen there were others who were striving against God. They were complaining to God. And Isaiah points out that such a position was foolish, like a pot complaining to the potter. They were striving against the God who cared for them and made them. But there were others in the days of Isaiah who looked at the internal situation and they looked at the external situation and they heard the Lord's message and they were anxious about the future. They were anxious as to what the future would hold. What would, what would the future be like for the people of God? And Isaiah 35 tells us that there were some who had weak hands and feeble knees, and they were of a fearful heart. After all, these were troublesome days and uncertain days for God's people. And I think it's worth just uh, pausing there for a moment and drawing a line of connection between Isaiah's day and our own. Isaiah lived in uncertain days, and so do we. As God's people, we can perhaps ask the question, what is the church going to look like in the future? What is it going to be like for our children and grandchildren to grow up in? What kind of a world are they going to have to live in? What's going to happen to the church? We've seen the pandemic has caused great problems in the world, but it seems to have caused even greater problems in the church. When I go around preaching in different places, it seems there are people who have left churches, walked out of churches, gone from churches, people who don't seem to ever want to come back to church all sorts of spiritual conditions, and it's exposed all sorts of attitudes. And we may ask ourselves, what's the church going to look like in the future? But you see, the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, was not only seeking to warn the people, but he was seeking to comfort the people. He sought to turn them away from their situation and turn them back to the Lord's. And the passage that we read from this morning was a message that was full of encouragement to the Lord's people. They were worried about the future. To them, the future seemed dark and, and foreboding. But the Lord comes along and he says to them, look, I'm the one who's omniscient. I'm the one who knows all things. You see, he says, look, the future to me is as clear as the noonday. And he says to the people here in Isaiah chapter 45, he would deliver and save his people and of course the Lord knew exactly how he was going to accomplish his purposes. He knew exactly, precisely the manner and the way in which he would deliver his people. And we may draw a line of connection to us. The Lord is omniscient. 
The Lord knows all things. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows the future. And we may have doubts and uncertainties about what the future may hold. And we may have fears as to what the church is going to look like in the future. But God is the one who knows the end from the beginning. And we have here an example to us in this this verse here, verse 11, of what we should do. What are God's people to do when they are anxious about the future? What should their reaction be? Well, here in this text, the Lord provides with a wonderful response. He says, ask me of things to come concerning my sons. He implores his people, look, if you're unsure of the way of head, if you, are, if you have doubts concerning the future, bring them to me. So this morning I want us to look at this verse 11 with you as we think about this subject of praying about the future. And I want us to consider three words this evening, three aspects to do with prayer. And the first one is this, an exhortation. Notice firstly in this verse, an exhortation. We're given an exhortation or we might say a command to pray. Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask me of things to come and then you find there at the end of the verse he says concerning the work of my hands command ye me you see the lord turns to his people in these days of distress and he implores them he commands them and exhorts them to ask and the word ask there that's translated it means to inquire it literally means to beg or to plead It's a word that's used throughout the Old Testament to speak of praying and pleading with God. We find the word especially employed of saints who who sought the Lord for guidance. You read the life of King David, you'll find all the way through his life, he inquired of the Lord, he asked of the Lord, he pleaded with God. 1 Samuel 23, he inquired of the Lord whether he should go up and fight with the Philistines. 1 Samuel 30, he inquired whether he should chase after those who had burned Ziklag to the ground. 2 Samuel 2, he inquired uh, concerning where he was to go. He asked the Lord for direction. He said, shall I go up to Hebron? And you could note so many more references in the life of David and, of course, in the life of so many of God's saints, how they asked God, particularly about the future. They sought the Lord for guidance and direction in their life. And the Lord says to us, look, he exhorts us to commune with him in prayer, to come and to ask. But you see, the language becomes even stronger, doesn't it, as you come to the end of that verse. He not only tells his people to ask, but he tells them to command him. Command ye me, he says. That's a, it's incredibly strong words. We're to command God's. That's, that, that, should be, that should astound us this morning that, that we can, and sinful human beings, he implores us to command him. It's a word that's normally used in the scripture to speak of the, the superior speaking to the inferior. Kings command their servants, fathers command their sons. And the word, of course, is applied particularly in, in the scriptures to speak of God commanding things. He's the one who spake and it was done and he commanded and it stood fast. He's the one who commanded this world into existence. Psalm 33 verse 9 tells us he's the one who who spoke these things and they all came into being. 
And yet here in this verse, these this fearful and trembling people, these people who are anxious about the future, are commanded to come and command him. You see what gracious condescension we see here from Almighty God. He exhorts his people to come and plead before the throne of heavenly grace. In effect, he says, look, I love it when my people pray. God loves to hear his children cry to him. It's true, isn't it, of earthly fathers? Earthly fathers love to have their children come to, and to ask, to show their dependence upon their father. And God loves it when we come and we ask of him. You see, God's heart especially beats towards his children. Psalm 34 verse 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. And so God says here in this verse, in verse 11 here, he says, ask me. We find lots of similar pleas in the scriptures, don't we? Think of Jeremiah 33 and verse 3. Call unto me, he says, and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Call unto me, he says. Christ, of course, in the New Testament encourages us to come and pray. To come and pray to his heavenly father. You remember how we have that that wonderful parable of the importunate widow. How she was encouraged to come and to pray and to pray and to pray. We're encouraged of course to pray for the Holy Spirit. Remember how we used the example of a father. If ye then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children. How much more shall your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask. He says look you need to ask. And he says here to the people in Isaiah's day, ask. And so the question for us this morning is, will we be be deaf to this wonderful encouragement to pray? Friends, let me ask you this morning, how often do you come to the Lord in prayer? Did you take, for example, time this morning to come to his throne of heavenly grace? It's there that we may obtain mercy. It's there that we may find grace to help in time of need. Remember what the psalmist said in in Psalm 116, I love the Lord. Why? Because he hath heard my voice and my supplications. Why? Because he has inclined his ear unto me. And because he's inclined his ear unto me, therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. We often say, don't we, that time spent wasting upon the Lord, time spent waiting upon the Lord is never wasted time. But how much do we really believe it? How much do we come and we pray to God? You see, God here says to the people, look, you're anxious, you're fearful about what the future holds. Ask me. I exhort you to come. Command me. And I think especially in these days we need that spirit of prayer, don't we? You read the biographies of men of the past and what do you find about all these great men? They were men of prayer. I was reading, been reading a book recently, just these past few weeks, about the civil war in America and about religion in the armies there. And it's amazing how often they prayed. You would find men in the middle of the battlefield and men were asking for their commands, what should we do next? But the man was on his knees in prayer. And they had to wait maybe 10 minutes in the middle of this battle for this man to get up off his knees because he was in prayer. How much do we need to come and have that spirit of prayer in our lives? 
And you see, it's in some one sense, it's very easy for me to say that from a pulpit, but it's so much harder, isn't it, for us to do it in practice? In a sense, it's easier for me to preach this than to do it. We find it so often so hard, don't we, to come to that place of prayer in our lives. But God says to the people here, ask me. Come and ask me. What a wonderful exhortation that is to pray. You'll notice, secondly, with me, not only is there an exhortation, but there's also a direction that we should pray. We're we're exhorted here to pray about the future, but where should we direct our prayers? Or perhaps we should say, to who should we direct our prayers? Notice what the verse says there in, in verse 11. Notice how it begins. Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his maker, ask me. We're to ask God. Our prayers concerning the future should be directed to the Lord. It's amazing when we think about who it is that's speaking here, isn't it? Notice the description that we find here at the beginning of the verse. He's the Lord. He is the Jehovah, the covenant name of God. He's the one who's eternal and unchangeable and unchanging. That's the one who says, come and ask me. That was the special name that was given to the people of God. Right there back in Moses at at the burning bush, the great I am. He is the Lord. He's also the Holy One of Israel. That's a title that Isaiah uses 29 times in his prophecy. It's a, it's a term that's very peculiar to Isaiah's uh, prophetic ministry. He is the Holy One. He is the one who is pure and sinless. We read at the very beginning that he is holy, 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 the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Speaks of his purity speaks of his righteousness. It speaks of the fact that there is no blemish in God. He is the one who is indelibly stamped with holiness. You see, when we direct our prayers, this is the one that we are coming to. Therefore, we need to come reverently. We need to come humbly. We are sinners and we're approaching a holy God. We do not come into his presence presumptuously. We do not come, as it were, you know, there's those who think that we, we've got the boldness to just come before him. No, we must, we must come with this reverence and this humility before him. He may say command, yes, but we're still to come acknowledging our unworthiness. You see, we come only in the name, don't we? And through the merits and the righteousness and the victory of Christ. But notice how else the Lord describes himself. He says, he is their maker, Just like the potter took the clay and formed the pot, so God had formed all mankind, but especially he had formed this nation, hadn't he? He had taken this people that he's talking to here, the land of Israel. He took Abraham and he made him into a mighty nation. He was their maker. He had directed and controlled all the affairs of his people. He was carrying out his purposes through this nation. He was the maker of their history He was the controller of their destiny. He orders and and plans all things. And in a sense, that's what this chapter is all about. And in chapter 44 too, the Lord is dealing with this issue about the future. And he shows to the people that he is the Lord of history. He's the one who is controlling all of the historical events. He is before time. He is above time. In chapter 44, you'll notice there in verse 6, if you just turn back there, 
He says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. And beside me there is no God. You see, he is the one who's foreordained all the times and the seasons. He is the one who's, as we said, who is omniscient. He is controlling all of human history. And such is the knowledge of God that in this remarkable passage, the even names the one that he's going to raise up to deliver and bring salvation to his people. His name, we're told in uh, verse 1, is Cyrus. You'll see it there as well in verse 28 of the previous chapter. God says, the man that I'm going to raise up to deliver my people is this man called Cyrus. Now you have to remember that this prophecy that Isaiah gives is, is about 140 years before this man is even born. And the emphasis is that, look, it's God and God who lo- God alone who knows the future. He's the one who can tell things that are coming and shall come. You notice that in chapter 44 and verse 7. He is the one who's been, uh, he says there, the things that are coming and shall come, let them show unto them. He says, look, ask the gods of this world, can they predict the future? Do they know what's going to happen in 140 years' time? No, the gods of this world shall profit nothing. They've got ears, but they cannot hear. And he talks about the gods in, in, in chapter 44 and from verse 9 onwards. He talks about these false gods. Can they tell the future? Do they know what's, what's coming? No, I'm the one who's the first and the last. I'm the one who knows the end from the beginning. You see, the gods of this world are empty and vain, but the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, their maker, he can. What he plans always comes to pass. What he purposes happens. And that's the theme that runs all the way through this. You go into chapter 14 of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 14. You turn back with me there to verse 23. Verse 24. Sorry, Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 24. The Lord of hosts have sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. You see, the Lord, he is the one who purposes and plans and it comes to pass. The gods of this world are empty and cannot do it. God is the infinite and supreme ruler. He is the one who is controlling all history. History is not blind chance, as we were thinking about a few uh, Sunday evenings ago. It's not controlled by men who walk the corridors of power. It's not controlled by presidents and kings and queens. It's controlled by almighty gods. And it's this God who says, ask me of things to come. Ask me about the future. And friends, isn't this a wonderful comfort to us as God's people living in uncertain days? Things may seem bleak. We may have our fears about what's going to happen to the church. We may have concerns about the future, just as they did in Isaiah's day. But when we come to pray concerning the future, we come before the great governor of this world. The one who plans and purposes. And it will surely come to pass. So then we've seen this exhortation to pray and we've seen the uh, direction that we should pray. But notice lastly with me this morning the limitation to our prayers, the limitation. Because he says this, ask me of things to come concerning my sons. 
concerning my sons. You see, we could ask the question, well, when we pray about the future, what are we to pray about? Does this mean that we can pray about anything? Does it mean that we can ask who's going to be the prime minister in a hundred years' time? Does it mean that we can ask God to, to tell us and reveal things about the future in that sense? No, he says, look, there's a limitation to our prayers. It's concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. So immediately we then ask the question, well, what does it mean here concerning my sons, concerning the work of my hands? What is the Lord telling us that we can pray for? Well, it's a particularly rich expression that we find here concerning my sons. My sons, plural, really means God's people here. It's something that we see throughout uh, the book of Isaiah, how he talks about sons, and he also talks about son. And you'll find those two uh, words appear a lot in the book of Isaiah. And when it's often talking about son, it's speaking of Christ. And when it's talking about sons, it's talking about those who belong to Christ. And so he says here, look, we're to pray about Christ and his people and the church. He'll talk about his Messiah. I mean, even this chapter is, is all about the Messiah, that they are going to have a saviour, verse 15. He is the, the God who is their saviour, verse 21. He is a just God and a saviour. He's talking, this is a Christ. And of course, we go on to chapter 53, and he'll talk about how this son, this servant, is going to be the one who will make an offering for sin, and he shall see his seed, his offspring, his sons, And so when we read this expression here in verse 11, it's speaking about God's people. He says, ask me about my people, about the church, about those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the second expression there concerning the work of my hands, in some ways it's a synonymous expression, but it's speaking more about what he would accomplish through his son, the work of his hands. What is God going to do? And so here in the context of Isaiah 45, God has just promised to his people that in the future he would send a deliverer, he's going to send a saviour, this man called Cyrus who's going to deliver his people. And so he says to God's people here, look, now that I've given you this promise, now that I've told you a saviour is coming, ask me to accomplish it. Ask me to pray about, pray about this. Say to, to me, fulfil this promise that you've given Look, I promised this man called Cyrus, now get on your knees and pray that God would raise him up. And you remember, of course, in the book of Daniel, this is what Daniel does. Daniel reads the promises of God. You go to Daniel chapter 9, and what do you see? You find Daniel reading the prophet Jeremiah, and he reads about the number of years that God's people are going to be in captivity. And what does he do? He doesn't say, well, God's just going to fulfill it. He's promised it, so he's just going to fulfill it. He gets on his knees and he prays. That God would fulfill his promise. And he comes, doesn't he? And he falls on his knees. He doesn't sit back and just say, well, you know, this is, this is going to come to pass because God's decreed it. No, he takes the promise and he presents it back to God. And this is what the people are being exhorted to do here. I've promised you that Cyrus is going to come. Now pray for it. And of course, our text here this morning has a far broader scope. This prophecy and command from God now extends to all of God's people, Jew and Gentile. This chapter is, far, is about far more than just Cyrus. Of course, Cyrus, in a sense, was a type of Christ. He was speaking of Christ that one day a saviour would come and deliver his people and set his people free. 
And you see that in verse 17. He talks about an everlasting salvation. You see, this was not, a, this was not just speaking about the salvation that Cyrus would give. And of course, verse 22 that we were thinking with the boys and girls, look unto me and be ye saved. This is speaking of Christ. And so friends, this morning God is exhorting us to take his precious promises that we find in his word and plead them before the throne of grace. You see, the God's people were not only to pray for Cyrus, but they were to pray for that one who would come from heaven to save them from their sin. He encourages them to pray about the future. And so friends, this morning he is exhorting us to take the precious promises of God's word and to plead them back to God. Call unto me, he says. Ask me of things to come concerning my sons. We're to take the promises about his church. We're to take the promises about salvation in Christ. We're to take the promises about the future, about Christ coming again. And we're to plead them to him. That's what true prayer is. You know, William Gurnall famously wrote, didn't he, that prayer is nothing but the promise reversed. In other words, we're to take the promises and reverse them and plead them back to God's. The promises that he's given to his church, we're to, as it were, fire them back in supplication to our Heavenly Father. Thomas Manton, the Puritan, puts it in another way, which I particularly like. He says, show God his handwriting. Show God his handwriting. Because God is tender of his words. You see, God cannot deny his words. If he denies his word, then he denies himself. William Gurnall went on to say this, the mightier Enia is in the words, the more mighty he will be in prayer. You see, our prayers are to be formed around the word of God. We're to come, we're to ask him of things to come concerning his sons, concerning the things that we find in the scripture, concerning Christ and his church. You see, friends, if we're to improve our prayer lives, we must read more and study more and meditate more upon the word of God's. We should come to the place of prayer, as it were, with a quiver full of promises that we've gathered from the scriptures, ready to fire to God's. And this means, friends, this morning that when we come and, and we, we can point to all the, the glorious promises in his word and we can take them and we can treasure them and write them down. And we can remind ourselves of the promises as we come to his words. And as we come to the place of prayer. There's so many wonderful promises, and we haven't time this morning to go through, but we could take so many. Think about that wonderful promise that Christ will build his church and that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You can plead that to God's. God, I don't see that happening so much in where we live. Will you not fulfill this promise even here in Ripon? Will we not see the church on the advance, marching forward, gaining souls from Satan's kingdom? What about if you're going through affliction? You can come and plead the promise that's only here in, in chapter 43. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, he says. And through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. You see, when we are faced with Satan's temptations and we feel his darts being hurled at us, when we feel that we are passing through the water and through the fire, we can say, God, you promised to be with us. What about concerning the future and the coming of Christ? Christ has promised, hasn't he, that he's going to come again. And what a glorious day that's going to be when we shall see our Saviour. And, and, and everything's going to be rolled up like a garment and there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. 
Do we not long for that day? What does John say at the end of Revelation? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. He's promised it and he pleads it. Oh, come, Christ. You know, if you read Spurgeon's little book, The Checkbook of the Bank of Faith, this is what he says, and he says each promise is like a check. It's a check that comes from the Heavenly Father. And we're to present these checks believingly at the counter of the bank of faith. And God is going to cash them in, in his due time. And so we come with these promises and we plead them before God. And you see, at this point, the whole passage, particularly our, our text this morning, God is showing to him that he is governing and controlling all things. He is the one who controls all of human history and it's all for the good of his people. Everything in this world is so that Christ's church is built. It's for the propagation of the gospel. It's so that souls would be added to his kingdom. The future is in his hands. He is superintending it. And he will carry out his perfect promises. And he will fulfill his purposes. History rolls on and on and it rolls on for his sons. And the only reason why this world is still going is because of his church. Because God has more souls to add to the church. Because God has more things to accomplish for the kingdom of, his, of, of Christ. And of course we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. And of course the wonderful thing is, in Ephesians chapter 3 we read, didn't he, that when we come and we ask him, he is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. I love Ephesians chapter 3. We have that great list of things that Paul prayed for for the church there. He prayed that they'd be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. He prayed that they'd be rooted and grounded in love and so on and so on. He adds all these different things. These are things that we can plead before the throne of grace. But at the end he says, look, as you ask these things, God's able to do even more exceeding abundantly above, above all that you could even ask for. And so friends, this morning as we come and we see this verse, as we pray about the future, ask me of things to come concerning my sons. The wonderful thing is he often does far beyond what we even ask for. Isn't that a wonderful encouragement to come and pray? Remember what Newton wrote, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. You know, friends, as you come to the word of God day by day, point, find the promises, underline the promises, and take them in prayer. I was thinking just this morning as I was reading, what could I, I just thought in my own personal time of study, I was reading Psalm 27, and just at the end of there, at that uh, psalm, it says, wait on the Lord, be of God, good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Underline that promise. He shall strengthen thine hearts and plead it back to him. Oh God, give me strength. Give me physical strength. Give me mental strength. Give me spiritual strength. You've promised it. Lord, will you not fulfill it for me today in my life as I go to work, as I go out into the world, as whatever it is that you have to do, working in the home, whatever it may be, God, give me the strength that I need. So friends, as you read God's word, underline the promises. Note them down and come and plead them before the throne of heavenly grace. When my time has gone, God says here, ask me of things to come 
concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands, command ye me. Well, God, may God help us to do that, to come to his throne of grace. Let's just bow before him now. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for this wonderful encouragement and this exhortation to pray. And Lord, as we realize that so often we neglect the place of prayer, and Lord, we ask therefore that thou would forgive us and cleanse us afresh. Lord, we pray that we would be people of prayer, that we would be those who uh, are regularly on our knees before thee. And Lord, we pray that we would come and we would plead the promises. Help us, Lord, to be those who are mighty in prayer before thee. Lord, we ask these things in our Saviour's precious name. Amen.